Welcome to the River Fellowship Podcast. This week, lead pastor Daryl Anderson takes us through Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 20. As believers, we need to hone our impersonation skills. When these two actions are an essential part of our life, we are actually imitators of God. If you'd like to learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, go to rfamarillo.org. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. And this is both a word of encouragement and a word of conviction. Encouragement because if we can live like Ephesians 5 tells us to, uh, God can do some amazing things through us. But for me personally, it's convicting because I realize how far I fall short of exemplifying Ephesians chapter 5 as well. But today's message is entitled Imitation. Charles Colton said that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. It's the way that you flatter someone and give a genuine uh, compliment. I did a little search this week and found an article that listed the top six celebrities most impersonated. So these are celebrities that are the most impersonated celebrities. Number six on the list was John Wayne. Number five was Jimmy Stewart. Now, some of you young guys have no idea who either two of those guys are. <laughs> but if you do know who they are, you, you know what their familiar voice and walk, why they're so impersonated. Number two is Arnold Schwarzenegger. But guess who the number one most impersonated celebrity is? Elvis, it's easy. Elvis Presley. Elvis died in 1977. And in that year, they said that there was around 170 Elvis impersonators. Today, they estimate that there are 85,000 Elvis impersonators. The growth track is just phenomenal. In fact, one fanatic says, if you continue that growth track in the year 2040, one third of the population will be Elvis impersonators. <laughs> so look to the person to your left, to your right. In 2040, one of you are gonna be an Elvis impersonator. I actually lived in Las Vegas in the mid-70s and saw Elvis in person in concert just a couple of years before he passed away. And you know, he had those few things that he does that every impersonator does. It's some kind of leg deal. I'm not going to try it because I'll hurt myself. <laughs> he had some lip curl, if you remember that. And he had this big arm swing that he'd always do. What's interesting about these impersonators is their goal was to match them exactly. Their voice, their walk what they did, how they did it, what they said, how they said it. This is the idea that Paul has here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, when he says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. It's interesting that in chapter 4, verse 1, he tells us to live a life worthy of our calling. Now in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, be imitators of God. What he's trying to convey is our doctrine, our belief, should match our lifestyle and what we do. Remember the first three chapters, he was dealing with uh, doctrine and belief and how much God loves us and what he's done for us. Now in these three chapters, it's lifestyle. So he's trying to say here that it should match. It's not important just to know the right things but we ought to be doing the right things as well. Our belief should affect our lifestyle. The word imitators here literally means to be a model or to be an example. He's really saying example and model your life after God. He is our model. He is our example. And in verse one, he reminds us of a foundation that we have. 
He says, be imitators of God, therefore, as what? Dearly loved children. If you remember in chapter three, we talked about the fact that we are rooted in love. We're not trying to earn God's love. We're not working for God's love. We are rooted in God's love because God loves us and has demonstrated that love through his son, Jesus Christ. We are rooted in love. And so he's reminding us of that, that we can imitate God because our stability and our foundation is we are dearly loved. We have a heavenly father that loves us. Now we know young children, they love to imitate their parents. Not youth so much. We do know that once they become youth, if you had youth, you've suddenly become the dumbest person in the world. That soon passes, but when they're small children, th th there's this innate uh, desire to imitate the parents. And you've all, th those of you that have children, you've all seen those times when you look at them and they're sitting j just like you or they're standing just like you or they're imitating you in some form. That's especially true with loving parents. And that's what God's trying to tell us here. We have a loving heavenly father. We're dearly loved children. So because of that, in that concept of being rooted and held in his love, that spurs us and gives us the stability to want to be imitators of him. Now, why should we imitate God? Chapter four, verse 24 tells us, it says, we are created to be like God in his righteousness and his holiness. We are actually created for the purpose to be like God. We're to imitate God because we're living out our purpose. When we are imitating God, we're actually living out the whole reason why we were created. As a believer, our greatest calling and activity is to imitate God both in his character and in his action. Our greatest calling is not to acquire wealth. It's not to be good parents. It's not to attain the American dream. It's not to do something great and noble. It's not even to be highly successful in my profession. Nothing wrong with any of those, but all of those should be secondary to the main purpose and goal of our life, and that's to imitate God in his character and his activity. When we imitate God, we're like God. Now this phrase, be imitators of God, it really speaks to passion and to heart. Why do Elvis impersonators impersonate Elvis? It's not for the money. Most of them don't make any money. It's not for the recognition because none of us probably even know who they are. They do it because they are obsessed with Elvis. They are captivated with Elvis. They are consumed with Elvis, so much so that they will spend hours looking at concerts, listening to their music, watching, honing their impersonation skills, trying to get every little thing just exactly right. They are so obsessed. Really what he's saying here is that's, it. that's the idea here. We should be so obsessed with God. We should be so captivated by God. We should be so consumed by God that we wanna spend hours trying to discern who he is in his word, trying to discern his character and his grace and how he lives and how he walks. We should be obsessed. That's really what Paul's saying here, that we have this innate desire to be just like him and we want to, to search the depth of who he is so we can imitate him. Well, after he lays this, this command, if you will, be imitators, he gives us two word pictures or two expressions of what we can do that that imitate God. When we do these, we are imitating God. Now, it's not an exhaustive list. 
but he does mention these two in Ephesians 5. And the first one is when we show love. Look at what verse two says. It says, be imitators of God as dear to love children and live a life of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He says to live a life of love. We imitate God when we show love. Number one, love displayed by sacrifice. Paul takes this chance and he reminds us about grace. He reminds us about the gospel. What he's been talking to us in the previous three chapters about the riches of God's grace and what we have. He reminds us about that by saying Jesus Christ gave himself up for us. So in the midst of how we should live, he just wants to throw in another reminder. Hey, it's all because of grace. Don't forget what Jesus Christ has done for you. He has loved us and gave himself up for us. But it also serves as a model. The fact that he was willing to sacrifice becomes the way that we show love is through sacrifice. John 3, 16, we all know the verse. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So God demonstrates love through sacrifice. But Christ does the same thing because the passage here said that Christ gave himself up. Nobody made Jesus Christ die for us. No one forced him on that cross. There was no struggle or no fight. Jesus willingly gave himself up for us. And it's through this idea of sacrifice. He models that for us. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And it's this idea of me being willing to sacrifice myself just like Christ sacrificed myself. In Romans 12, verse 1, it says that we're to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. How do we do that? How do we offer our body as a living sacrifice? Well, for me... The best word picture is the actual Old Testament altar system, the sacrificial system. If you remember, they would place the sacrifice on the altar, and that altar, altar that, that sacrifice then would be killed for God, dedicated to God. To me, the word picture is when I love by sacrifice, I demonstrate my love to God and others by my sacrifice, that's as if I willingly climb up on that altar. No one has to force me on it. There's no fighting. I don't get on it kicking and screaming and yelling. I willingly climb up on that altar myself and I say to God, kill everything about me. Kill me. My plans, my dreams, my goals, my flesh, everything that is me generated, kill it on the altar so that when I get up, the only thing left is you and everything about my life is you. That's what it means to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. I am 100% committed and available for you to use me. I've killed my flesh, I've killed myself. So what we see here is that true sacrifice is expressed, one, in a sacrifice to God, but also sacrificing ourselves to others. My love for God should create a love for people which then generates in a willingness for me to sacrifice myself to show love to people as well. But then he adds another element here. He says, love is also displayed by holiness. Our love for God is displayed in our desire for holiness. Look at verse three. He says, among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place, 
but rather thanksgiving. Verse six, let no one deceive you with empty words for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Back in the day when this was written, there were a group of people called, called Gnostics and Gnostics were intellectual people. They were into the spirit area. They, they believed that anything in the spirit was good, anything in the flesh was bad. So in the context of Christianity, they would say Christianity is a spiritual thing. It's not a physical thing. As a result of that, a false teaching arose that basically said the same thing. In other words, if you want to follow Christ, it's all about a spirit thing. It doesn't affect the flesh. And as a result, people just lived any way they wanted to live. They did anything they wanted to do. They could live in sexual immorality and greed and impurity and drunkenness and whatever because the teaching said all that's in the physical realm, so it doesn't matter. Jesus is in the spiritual realm. What Paul is saying here is that's not right. <laughs> that's wrong. It does affect the physical. Now, you have to remember, we're looking at the church in Ephesus. It's a new church. These are new believers. Uh, Christianity is new. The New Testament church structure is new. They don't have a canon of scripture at all. So, so all that's on the beginning stages. So as a result, that teaching was very appealing because many of them had come from pagan worship and they experienced all that lifestyle. So they were able to come love Jesus, but still participate in that same kind of lifestyle. And Paul's saying, no, that's not, that's not the way it works. When you, when you truly imitate God, you imitate God in his character, and that affects your lifestyle. That introduces this concept of holiness that you seek to, to look like Christ, not just his actions and his love, but also in his, in his character. So that's one element that Paul says, imitate God. If you imitate God well, you're gonna show love well. And your love is gonna be demonstrated by sacrifice and by holiness. I'm gonna love people as well as I'm going to love God. In fact, my love for God is gonna move me to love people. But then he introduces a second aspect of imitation, and that's to shine light. Look in verse eight. He says, for you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. He tells us now to live as children of light. So imitation is to live a life of love and to live as children of light. And then he gives us a few aspects relating to light and how that impacts us. And first, in verse eight, he tells us that light overpowers darkness. He says, you were once darkness, but now you're light. In other words, through the power of Christ, light has overpowered darkness. You used to be darkness, but now in Christ, you're light. So light overpowers darkness. I want to illustrate this a little bit for you. So I'm going to ask our guys to turn off all the lights here for a second. And it's not going to be pitch black dark. I wish it, I wish it were, but hopefully it's dark enough that you can kind of get an idea of some of these principles as we talk about light overpowers darkness. Okay, now it's dark. Here's one principle about this, and that is that one small light dispels darkness. Okay, it's dark, but all it takes 
is one small light and it begins to dispel the darkness. And what's interesting is in the midst of the darkness, you're drawn to the light. And it doesn't take a huge light to dispel the darkness. It takes one small light. Can you imagine what multiple lights would do to darkness? So I want you to help me, a little audience participation. If you have your cell phone with you, pull out your cell phone. And if you have a light attached to your phone, turn your light on and just kind of shine it around. Okay, you see all the light? This, what this is telling us is light overpowers darkness. And the more the light, the greater the dispensary of the darkness. Now, the opposite is also true. There's a counter element here. And that is that it, how darkness, what, dark, what light must do in order for darkness to exist. Okay, to, to show this, this half, I want you to leave your light on. This half, turn your light off. We just turned off half the lights, but look how much light there still is. Okay, now I want everybody except the front row, okay? Everybody else turn your lights off except the front row. We still have light. Now you guys turn your lights off. And that's just my light. Here's the other principle. Darkness must completely snuff out every single light for it to reign and for it to rule. Okay, turn the lights back on for me. I wanted you to visualize this because I want you to understand what he's trying to say here and the impact that we have as light that overpowers the darkness. Christ says, I am the light of the world. In Matthew, he tells us, he says, we are the light of the world. In 1 John, it says, greater is he who's in us than he that is in the world. In 1 Corinthians 10, it says that the spirit in us is stronger than the temptation before us. John 1.5 says that the light shines in the darkness. Here's the principle that we have to get in our spirit and our heart, and that is that light overpowers darkness if we're willing to shine the light. You may be the only light in your environment. I don't know, in your work environment, in your neighbor, I don't know. You may be the only light in your environment, but that's okay because it only takes one light to dispel the darkness. Add to that in verse nine, he says that light contrasts darkness. He says here that light is characterized by goodness and righteousness and truth. Darkness is characterized by the opposite, by evil, by ungodliness, by lies, etc. So what he's saying here, when we live a life that is represented by goodness and righteousness and truth, what we are doing is we are shining our light into a dark world. He adds that now in verse 11, and he says that light exposes the darkness. John 3, 19 and 20 says that light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light. And everyone who does evil hates the light. Part of the job when Christ came and when the Spirit came is to bring conviction. And in this context, conviction is simply God's Spirit exposing the darkness in us, shedding light on our sin and our darkness. What Paul's trying to say here for us is we are to live as children of light. And he's trying to paint a picture of the difference that that will make in our world when we're willing to shine our light. 
overpowering darkness and exposing darkness. That's part of our role as believers, as the light, as shining our light. We are overpowering darkness and we are exposing darkness all at the same time while we are loving people. See, these two tie together and they go together. That's why he's put both of these in here. We're not just, a, we're not just a, supposed to scream darkness and this is what you're doing wrong. It's in the context of love. We're showing love. We're demonstrating love to people. And at the same time, we're exposing that sin and shining light because here's the deal. We love people and we don't want them to be consumed by darkness. So we shine our light so they can see the light of Christ and they can be drawn from the darkness into his marvelous light. When we do that, we're imitating God. Now from there, he gets a little more intense. In verse 15. After saying all this, he says, now then, be very careful how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He uses this phrase, be very careful. In the Greek, those two words combine uh, to, to give a word that talks about accuracy, doing it well. I would use the word precision. For example, I don't have an ACL in my knee, so if I step wrong, my knee can go different directions, which isn't good. So if I'm on ice or if I'm on unlevel terrain, I'm very careful how I walk. I'm very precise in where I put my foot. For surgeons, when they're doing surgery, they're gonna be very accurate and precise. They don't wanna cut the wrong place. They don't wanna nip the wrong thing. So in surgery, they are very careful. They're very precise and accurate. That's this word that Paul's using right here. What he's saying is it's very critically important that you as a believer show love and shine your light. Why? Because the days are evil. The world needs our love to counteract the hate. It needs our light to counteract the darkness. So what he's saying is be very intense. Be very intentional about the way you live. And he gives us more specifics of what that looks like. In verse 16, he tells us to be opportunistic. He says, make the most of every opportunity. Probably for most of us, opportunities to show our love and shine our light are abundant. We have, we have opportunities all the time. For most of us, not having opportunity isn't the issue. The issue is are we taking advantage of the opportunities that we have? You may work in a very dark place. You may work around people that love darkness. What better opportunity to shine your light? You may work around people that are hard to love. You may work around people that do not reciprocate love. What better opportunity to show love? 
That's what he's talking about here. Instead of running and not loving and not shining your light, take those opportunities. Be very intentional that when you're in those environments, take the opportunities to show love and to shine light. That's why verse 14 says, wake up, O sleeper. We shouldn't be sleepy Christians, just kind of going through, missing every opportunity that we have to impact people's lives. He says, man, don't waste the opportunities. Be opportunistic. But then in verse 18, he says, be spirit controlled. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. Now here he uses alcohol just as kind of a compare contrast element. I don't necessarily think he's picking on that. I think he's using it because it's a great word picture. We all understand what happens in the context of drunkenness. What happens is we are what we call now under the influence. Now we could be under the influence of sexual morality and greed and other things too, but he uses alcohol because we can understand how drunkenness, we are under the influence and under the control now of alcohol. What he's simply saying is don't be under the influence of anything else. Be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Be under the control of the Holy Spirit. Why is that so important? It's so important because it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we're gonna have the opportunity and the ability and the strength and the insight to show love and to shine light. We're not gonna be driven to imitate God in our flesh. We're not gonna be driven to show love and to shine light when all we care about is what's going on in our own life. We need to be completely infused and influenced with the Spirit. That's why we talked a few weeks ago kind of about what that means. It means that the Spirit's getting more and more of me. I'm yielding more and more and submitting more and more to what the Spirit wants to do in me and how the Spirit wants to use me. And so when I'm under the influence of the Holy Spirit, when I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, now my whole mindset and directive and intentionality is to let God use me. And so I'm gonna take opportunity now to show love to people. And I'm gonna take the opportunity to shine my light in those dark environments. Then he uses one more word picture. He says, be people of worship. He tells us in 19 and 20 to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing, make music to the Lord in your heart. Giving thanks. In the early church, music Worship through music was a critical element in corporate worship. Really what he's talking about here, he's in the context of corporate worship. What you should do in the context of corporate worship. So he uses this dynamic and he speaks in musical terms. This is a rabbit, so I'm not gonna stay on it, but when we come together and worship through music, man, we ought to take that opportunity because that's a critical link in our worship and our expression for worship because it's through music that we can demonstrate our love and passion and connection in, in no other way. Our, our heart and our spirit connects with God through that music and through that singing that it doesn't connect in any other way. That's why we... That's why we do worship through music in our corporate worship services. But here, what he's trying to communicate here, there are a couple of very important elements in corporate worship. Two very specifically. Worship God and encourage one another. The two elements of corporate worship is to worship God. Now, that may look differently. That can be through praying together, that can be through the word, the singing, but we, we, we come to worship God and we come to encourage one another. 
I want to give you a challenge this morning. I'm going to leave you with a challenge. Every week, when you come to corporate worship, do not come with the purpose of being fed or having your needs met. Nothing wrong with those two things. We all want to be fed, and I hope when you do come, I hope you are spiritually fed. When you come, I hope your needs are met. There's nothing wrong with those two things. But I want to challenge you that when you come, don't come with those two things in the forefront of your mind. Instead, I want you to come with the forefront of your mind these two things, these two goals. That's to worship God and to encourage one another. So next week when we gather together, as you come through the door, I want in your heart to be, I'm here for two reasons. I'm here to worship God and to thank him for his goodness and his grace and his power and his love. And I'm here to give my adoration and praise to him. And number two, to encourage other people. It's interesting what would happen if we come to worship with that mindset, what he will actually do in us. And can you imagine if an entire congregation comes with that mindset, how that can revolutionarily change the whole dynamic of what takes place in corporate worship. Hebrews 10.25 says, let us not give up meeting together, but let us encourage one another. Here's the reality. I need you. For me to imitate God, for me to stay faithful, I need you, and we need each other. When I see you worshiping God, it encourages me to worship God. When I hear you praying, it encourages me to pray. When I see you encouraging others, that encourages me to encourage others. When I see you ministering to people, that encourages me to minister to people. We need one another. And one of the greatest dynamics that can take place in corporate worship when we gather, worship God, but that we come to encourage one another. Our mindset should be, I'm here for you. I'm here for God, number one. I'm here for you, number two. So I'm not coming about myself. I may have needs, I may have, I may have, but I'm putting all those aside. I'm crucifying those. I'm laying those needs on the altar. Everything about myself that's generated for me, I'm laying that on the altar. And when I come to corporate worship, I'm going to come with two purposes, to worship God and encourage you. Well, what a difference that would make in our corporate worship environment. So here's the gist, here's the summary. Here's what Paul's saying. Work on your impersonation skills. Man, put that time in and hone the art of imitating God by showing love and by shining light. Let's pray together. Take a moment, just let the Spirit minister to you. There might be one or two truths that the Spirit is saying, this, this is what I want you to get this morning. This is, this is your take home this morning.
take a moment just between you and the Lord now, just, just in conversation. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the spirit that translates and empowers that word in us. So Father, take this word this morning and burn it into our spirit. So that Father, this week as we go back into our spheres of influence, into our work and into our schools, to our neighborhoods, we would be people committed to show love and to let our light shine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. To learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, or to hear more messages, go to rfamarillo.org. Thanks. Have a great week.